Okay, so this month we've started a new annual uh, theme for our preaching ministry, which is finding life in Jesus' name. And normally we'd have a selection of sermon series throughout the year from the whole Bible on this, uh, kind of organized under this theme. But this year we're doing something a little different. Uh, for almost the whole next year, we're going to be going slowly, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the gospel according to John. And so far, we've made it through chapter one. Congratulations. We're, we've only begun, really. We've just started. And this morning, we get to, with the start of chapter two, the author, John the Apostle, kicks off the public ministry of Jesus with the famous miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. Now, I know that it's summertime, and <laughs> so if you missed any of the sermons so far that's kind of served as an introduction into the life and ministry of Jesus, you can always go back and watch online, or you can listen to the audio podcast if you'd like. But today, with this miracle, this sign of turning water into the, to wine, we will see the first of seven signs in John's gospel, which ultimately reveal who Jesus is and what the kingdom is like where he is king. So this, is, this first sign at the very start of his public ministry sets the stage for what his unique and world-changing ministry would be all about. And the message here is so surprisingly good. The way of Jesus, of becoming a disciple of Jesus, as we talked about last week, the life that is found in Jesus' name None of this is easy, but it is so very good. The first of the seven signs is a sign of celebration, which ought to be received with joyful praise and surprised thanks. And yet, it is not easy. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to John chapter 2, starting with verse 1. John chapter 2, starting with verse 1. We'll put the scripture on the screens for you as well, but let's just jump right in. Verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So let's pause here for a second, okay? So just like the Godfather movie, the public ministry of Jesus starts with a wedding. <laughs> Is that what you all thought of? Okay, chapter one ends with a few men starting to follow Jesus as his disciples. And we saw last week that it was Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, and John, the author, uh, who all started following Jesus initially because of the testimony of John the Baptist. But after they spent some time with him, they started bringing others to him, convinced that he was the Messiah or the chosen one sent by God. Now, if we look at a map, we can see that this all happened in the southern region of the wilderness beyond the Jordan River to the east of Jerusalem. This is in the, the region of Judea. Um, now here, the wedding is taking place in the north, in Cana, in the region of Galilee, which is near the Sea of Galilee. Eventually, at the end of this passage, Jesus and some of his disciples and family will wind up in Capernaum. Okay, well, so 
this wedding is taking place in a small town, the small town of Cana in the northern region of Galilee. And Cana was only a few miles away from where Jesus grew up in the also small town of Nazareth. Now, we don't know whose wedding they were attending, uh, but it'd be kind of fun to make up an answer to that, but <laughs> we don't really know. But we can guess that it was someone who was a, a family friend of, of Jesus, since his mother Mary had been invited too. Uh, now, because Joseph isn't mentioned in the Gospels after Jesus was about 12 years old, many people assume that Joseph at some point passed away. And perhaps Jesus, being the oldest son, took over the carpentry business. And in one passage, he's referenced as the carpenter. So we don't know for sure, but I believe it, it, it's likely that Joseph had passed away by this point. But Jesus and his disciples were there at this wedding, and a problem arises. Okay, this is a good drama. It starts to unfold. Mary makes this statement to Jesus. They have no more wine. Okay, <laughs> like go to, we were right next to Festival Foods, go get some more wine, right? Uh, well, no, this is a big deal. And culturally, uh, it's hard for us to see because it just isn't, I mean, it probably would be a big deal if we ran out of wine at a modern wedding here in Wisconsin. But commentator Don Carson writes this, a, a wedding celebration at this time could last as long as a week and the financial responsibility lay with the groom. To run out of supplies would be a dreadful embarrassment in a shame culture. Okay, this is a big deal. And Mary recognizes this is an embarrassment. And she points this out to Jesus. Now, from the context, it appears that she's expecting him to do something about it and not just making a passing observation. Because Jesus uh, responds to this but he responds in a curious way. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now the NIV gives us a footnote trying to help Jesus out by saying that the Greek word here for woman isn't disrespectful. It's not woman, okay. <laughs> it's something like dear woman or ma'am, we don't have a good translation for it. But it's not disrespectful, but I don't think it appears to be overly affectionate, right? It seems kind of like he's bothered by something. Well, what could Jesus be bothered about? Well, he references here something about his hour. Now, this is going to be a major theme in John's gospel, so we're, we're going to come back to it in a moment. But for now, Mary tells the servants at the wedding, do whatever he tells you, which I have to say is wonderful advice. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon today, listen to Mary and do what Jesus tells you to do, okay? That's 100% always good advice. Whatever he tells you, do it. Okay, well, despite this curious, maybe cryptic response, Mary seems to understand that Jesus might still do something to save the groom from embarrassment and the attendees of this wedding from having no wine. But what could he do? Look at verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet 
tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Okay, so the Jewish people at this time had two sources guiding them morally. They had the law, which is also known as the law of Moses, which was a collection of 600 plus laws that were given to them by God at Mount Sinai when God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. But then they also had the traditions of their elders. They had the law and then their traditions. And the ceremonial washing using these six large stone jars was not based on a law of God, but on a tradition of man. In Mark's gospel, Mark writes, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as washing cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, this isn't the same thing as doing the dishes or washing your hands with soap. This was ceremonial washing. It meant something more than just getting rid of the dirt. The ceremonial aspect of this washing represented the, the cleanliness of a pure heart and pure hands. In other words, it represented holiness or godliness, and, and it references the forgiveness of sins. So the way that Mark describes it, there was probably also, unfortunately, a, a bit of showmanship or maybe self-seeking attention that was being uh, received from this tradition. It wasn't just that the people or the Pharisees wanted to be holy, which is good. That is a good desire to be forgiven for sin, to be clean from a spiritual perspective. But it was that they wanted other people to see them as holy too. They wanted the credit. They wanted the glory. So it's interesting to me that Jesus told the servants to fill these particular jars with water. Now for two reasons at least. First, these were big jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons a piece, which means, which means that Jesus turned, in the end, about 150 gallons of water into the best wine. And I, my math is correct, that's about 750 bottles at least. This is such an extravagant gift. The master of the wedding banquet, not realizing where all this wine came from, was surprised at the quality of the wine. He said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Meaning, I think this is just common sense, normally people start with the expensive stuff and then put out the cheap stuff toward the end of the night when people are maybe less picky, right? But the master of the banquet, and by the way, don't you want to be the master of a banquet at some point? This is a role we need to bring back into our wedding. Maybe that's the wedding planner. I don't know. Anyways, the, the master of the banquet recognized that this was not the cheap stuff. This was the best wine. And so the groom wouldn't be embarrassed, and there was more than enough for everyone. 
Now, the other reason why I think it's interesting that Jesus used these jars, these particular stone jars, in addition to the fact that it was just an extravagant amount of the best wine, was that he was transforming one of the traditions of the elders. He used those stone jars for ceremonial washing for something pointing to something and someone far better. Let's come back to that at the end. Look at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he, was reve- he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Okay, this is our whole story. So, as we've said, this, this wedding in Cana starts a long section in John's gospel which highlights Jesus' public ministry. This is the beginning. So chapters 2 through chapters, chapter 12 uh, in John's gospel are sometimes called the book of signs because, among many other things, they contain seven signs. Um, now, in other gospels, they're referred to as wonders or miracles or power of God. In John, he chooses the word signs. Um, changing water into wine is the first, we're told here. However, we know, we know that Jesus did many more than seven miracles in the three or so years of his public ministry. In fact, the impression that we get as you read through the gospel accounts of his life and ministry is that miracles or signs, as John would say, almost seem to be like a daily occurrence. It just was constantly happening. It was just Jesus being Jesus as I like to say. So at the end of John's gospel, John agrees with this. He says, he writes these words. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, these seven signs are presented very intentionally by John as almost like a sample of his miraculous ministry. But why signs and why seven? Okay, why signs? Well, later Jesus makes this statement in John's gospel in chapter four. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. So miraculous signs serve to authenticate the message and the messenger. Seeing evidence of God's power is helpful to our faith. It was helpful to the disciples' faith 2,000 years ago. It's helpful to my faith today. When I see God at work, it is encouraging. It's strengthening. It helps me see that the words of the gospel are plausible and true today. But why seven? Well, in the Bible, seven is a number representing completeness or wholeness. So I envision the seven signs recorded by John here. They're like a wing in this art gallery that he has curated for us about Jesus. The wing is called signs of glory. And they contain this collection of miracles performed by Jesus, which we're told here revealed his glory and by which his disciples responded to by believing or trusting, putting their faith in him. 
So the whole gallery reveals the beautiful truth about who Jesus is, but this particular wing, Signs of Glory, teaches us seven truths about the miraculous power of Jesus. And each sign gives us a little different story, a little different picture as to who Jesus is and what the kingdom is like where he is king. So what does this first sign teach us? Turning water into wine. And by the way, this is a question we'll ask when we encounter the other six signs. Well, this sign is a sign of celebration. Think about the context. We're at a wedding. This is a party. Everybody is invited. The DJ is playing music, people are dancing, there's a feast, they already drank all the wine. Do you wanna know what the kingdom of God is like? Do you wanna know who Jesus is like? It's like bringing the best wine to a feast with more than enough for everyone to share. I just can't think of a better picture to start describing the way of Jesus. Now we'll get to this more. It's certainly not an easy way. Certainly for the follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter how faithful you are, it doesn't matter how, how bold you are for Christ in the world, bad things happen, difficulties happen, pain and suffering happen. But the truth is, is that in a broken world, there is no easy way. And sometimes following the way, doing whatever Jesus tells you to do, will get you in serious trouble. But his way is so very good. It's a good life. It's the abundant life that Jesus offers. It's an eternal life with, with God and full of God's blessing and provision and goodness, more than enough to share. But all of this life and faith rest on Jesus' cryptic statement about his hour. My hour has not yet come. This was the reason that Jesus was bothered this is what Jesus was thinking about as he was sitting at the feast. What does this have to do with this sign of celebration? Everything. Because we can't have the ultimate feast, the ultimate celebration, the ultimate party until Jesus faces his hour. Now it is here at the beginning in chapter two that Jesus, that John introduces a thread that will run throughout his gospel. In fact, there are seven references in John to the hour of Jesus. And every time it references his suffering and death on the cross. Now just a hint, everything is sevens for John. <laughs> everything. There are seven signs. There are seven statements of the hour. There are seven I am statements of Jesus. There are, it's everything seven. Seven was his, his favorite number. Another wing in the gallery could be called the hour. 
Now, was Jesus bothered at the wedding because he was thinking about what he was going to have to endure one day on the cross? Well, given his reference to the hour, I think we can assume that this is true. This wedding in Cana reminded Jesus of what he still had to face in order to enjoy his own wedding banquet, the wedding feast of the lamb with his bride, the church, in the age to come. Now, is this a stretch? I don't believe so, because remember how the story started with a reference to time. If you want to look back in your Bibles, you can see it. On the third day, John says. On the third day, that should, for Christians, make us think of something. On the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. But there's another reference to time. John says that when this wedding took place was the third day. Well, the third day from what? If you read back through chapter one, you might see that there are actually four different days that are referenced, starting with the introduction to John the Baptist's ministry being day one and two. That means that this wedding is actually happening on the seventh day so far in John's gospel. Just as John started using language, started his gospel using language to represent a new Genesis, a new beginning. Remember, in the beginning in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning in John's gospel was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. His name is Jesus. So John, seeing Jesus as being a new Genesis, here he uses the language to represent a new week of creation. In Genesis 1, Moses uses a seven-day framework to tell the story of creation. Here, after the prologue, John has the ministry of John the Baptist happening on days 1 and 2, then calling of the disciples on days 3 and 4, and now here, three days later, the wedding in Cana would be taking place on the seventh day. Now, I do not believe for a second that this is an accident. Otherwise, why would John reference the days? He doesn't do that in other places in his gospel. And the number seven is way too significant for John. So if this is a reference to the first week of creation, what happened in Genesis on the seventh day? Genesis chapter two, verses two and three say, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating he had done. In other words, God Sabbathed. He ceased from his work. He rested. Later in the law of Moses, this Sabbath is commanded for God's people and here, in this first sign of Jesus, we have a sign that is a new Sabbath, a new celebration, a new and better offer of rest is coming into existence. As the author of Hebrews writes, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. So this sign is a foreshadow, it's a taste of celebration, pointing not only to the new creation of Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, but further on to the second coming and the wedding feast that will happen on that day. 
Do you think that this is what Jesus had in mind? Is this why he seems bothered? Because of the hour? Jesus knew that before that day of celebration would be one great and terrible day that would have to come first, which leads me to my big idea for the day, which is this. Celebration comes after the cross. This was true for Jesus. So it is often, it is so often true for those of us who follow Jesus. Joy comes after morning. The dawn comes after the night. The best wine comes after water. The celebration of the resurrection comes after the hour and the horror of the cross. The person and work of Jesus needs both the cross and the empty tomb. We need both the joy and the sorrow. Sorrow for our sin. Sorrow for the brokenness of the world. Sorrow for the loss of how things should have been. Sorrow, which is what the ceremonial washing was pointing to but could never actually touch. Wash as we might, we cannot wash off the stain of our sin. But also joy. Joy because we have a savior. Joy because there's a way that leads to life and joy and peace. Joy because there is a gospel and it is true, just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. So what is Jesus like? And what is the kingdom like where he is king? From this first sign we see, it's like bringing the best wine to a feast with more than enough for everyone to share. But one day, there will be a greater celebration than any of us can imagine. One day, the lamb will return and we will feast and dance probably and whatever else you do at a feast. We'll listen to the master of the banquet. They'll tell us what to do. But for now, just like with Jesus, celebration comes after the cross. We need to go through the cross to get to the empty tomb. We need today to walk together as the people of God, arm in arm, through times of pain and suffering, through hardship, with a joyful expectation that it will not always be like this. And the place that we are going, there will be singing forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, what must you have been thinking? And how deeply do you care for us if you were in fact thinking of our wedding banquet that will happen one day? Lord Jesus, I pray that we would see this sign and we would see the glory that it reveals about who you are. And we would see this sign as one of many signs that strengthen and encourage and empower our faith to trust you, 
to believe in you and to follow you by faith even when we walk through the valleys, even when life is hard and, and we suffer and people nearby us who we love and care for suffer, even when we come face to face with the brokenness of this world, Lord Jesus, may we too have a vision of the celebration that is yet to come. And this miraculous sign, which is a sign of celebration. Lord, thank you. Thank you that this is who you are. And thank you that this is what your kingdom is like. Help us to follow you in light of that truth. We pray in your name. Amen. Please stand.